Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's pray together. Our God, this is your living word. And we pray that this evening in our midst, by your spirit, you would take and wield, wield it in our hearts. That you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would train us, that you would convict us. And most of all, we ask that you might see fit to use your word to glorify your son. We pray that you would lift high the name of Jesus Christ as we sit under your word now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the facts of life is that all of us who live in this fallen world will suffer. Some of us might look around and think that we're suffering more than others in our midst. Some of us might look around and, and see that we are suffering less than many others whom we know. Certainly we could compare ourselves to those throughout the world and see variations during different time periods of the way people suffer. Uh, Suffering often comes at us at unexpected times and it hits us in ways that we never anticipated. Now this fact of life, this fact of suffering that every human being undergoes in some measure at some time is something about which the Bible speaks a great deal. There is much teaching about suffering in the Scriptures. I want to review for you, before we look at this passage specifically, just a few of the things that the Bible says about suffering, because all of them stand in the background of this particular text. And so we need to have a whole Bible view in order to understand the text in front of us. First, the Bible says something that we all know to be true, which is that suffering is to be expected in life. The Bible says this is true both because we live in a fallen world, the effects of sin are obvious when we look around us, obvious when we look in our own hearts, obvious when we open our Bibles and we live in a fallen world. And then on top of that, as Christians, the Bible says that all who desire To live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a suffering that we should expect to undergo because uh, we are those who name the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Suffering is to be expected. It's part of the human condition and it's certainly part of the Christian's condition. This is why Peter says, don't be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. The Bible also tells us that suffering for the Christian reveals, shows to everyone around us and to ourselves the reality of our faith. Suffering has a way of doing this. Those who aren't serious about their 
commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed in times of suffering. And conversely, those who are genuinely committed to him, though that's borne out in suffering as well. Again, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, this is the reason for the trials, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say a little later in that same letter, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This shows something of the proven genuineness of our faith. Well, the Bible also tells us that suffering and times of suffering, and again, this is speaking to those who are united to Christ through faith, that suffering and times of suffering actually displays the power of God in us. And this is counterintuitive because when we are suffering, that's a, that's a time of great weakness. We, we feel our limitations. We feel our struggles. We, we see what we can't do. We're, we're, we're under the weight of something. And yet, the Bible says, Paul says, specifically in 2 Corinthians 12, that when he asked the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh from him three times, the Lord said this, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A couple other things we need to note about suffering before we address the teaching of this passage. The Bible tells us that God is with us in our suffering. Whatever it is that you're suffering, whether it's a physical or emotional or relational, uh, whatever it is that you're suffering now or maybe suffering in the future, there are so many biblical promises that God makes to his people that he will be with them and be with them in a peculiar way during times of suffering. Isaiah 43 is a great promise to the people of God where the prophet says to them, when you pass through the waters, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. The psalmist in Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, him from them all. And that leads to the last comment about suffering that we could make before looking at this passage. And that's that God causes us to grow through our suffering. And I think most people who look back on their life see this. They recognize that the times when the Lord caused us to grow the most were often not times of great ease, but times of great stress and difficulty. And this is something that the Bible teaches us. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And Paul echoes that same teaching in Romans chapter 5. You know this glorious text in Romans chapter 5 where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
Because you know that the testing of your faith produces this kind of steadfastness. Now, um, we know all these things from the scripture. We know some of them from our own experience. But what is added here is the experience of Job in this book. Job, as you know, if you've read the book of Job, suffered greatly. In fact, the Lord offered him up to Satan in the first chapters. Uh, Satan appeared before the Lord, and the Lord told him to take a look at Job. And Satan, of course, then does take a look at Job and, and asks for permission to afflict Job greatly. He does afflict Job greatly. He takes away his, his wealth. He takes away his, his family. He takes away all these external things that brought him joy. And, and at the end of all that, Job still fears the Lord. And Job still serves the Lord and praises the Lord. So Satan goes back and, and in fact, asks to be able to afflict Job's body. And the Lord allows that as well. And the Lord's in control of all of it. But if you've read through the book of Job, you know that the substance of the book doesn't deal with just Job's own suffering and affliction, although that's the backdrop for it, but instead it deals with the way in which, the ways in which Job's friends seek to offer him advice and counsel in the midst of his suffering. And really what the book is, is a series of uh, dialogues, a series of back and forth between Job and his friends as they seek to accuse him of sin and they seek to explain why this is happening. None of them know why it's happening at all. And, and what becomes clear as the book progresses is, is that their explanations just aren't, aren't accurate at all. And the Lord condemns them for that. Now, Job, throughout this book, maintains that his friends are wrong. He knows that what they're saying isn't actually uh, fitted to his situation, that they actually don't understand him and they don't understand the Lord. And Job also makes these great declarations of faith throughout the book. You might think of Job 19, where Job, as he's suffering and as his friends are making it worse by pouring on accusation after accusation, Job says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see my God. Job knows that he will be raised from the dead one day. And then on that day of resurrection, he will see his redeemer who will take his stand on the earth. But Job also struggles with the situation that's presented to him. And at one point in Job 23, he asks for his day in court. Job says this, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. What Job is asking for is a chance to stand before God and to make his case. And he seems to indicate here that if he had that chance, surely God would owe him some answers. Well, what happens just before this chapter is God does appear to Job. He didn't have to do that, but he graciously did appear before Job. But it goes in an entirely different direction than, than the way in which Job thought it was going to go in. 
Because instead of Job asking God questions, when, when God appears before Job, the first words the Lord says are, now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then he begins to pepper Job with all these questions about the world and about creation, about how uh, things happened in the world. Uh, some of these things are very mundane, things like where do the mountain goats go in the winter, and how do the clouds store up rain, and where does all the water go when the rivers flow into the sea. But what Job realizes very quickly, and this is the purpose, of course, of God's questions, is that he has barely even a kindergarten-level knowledge of the universe that God had created. And the purpose of that is to show Job his ignorance and to show Job, in fact, that God's wisdom and God's ways were far beyond even what Job was prepared to comprehend. The Lord is, as it were, saying to Job, Job, you're asking me these advanced level questions, demanding an answer, but you can't even answer the most basic questions I put before you. So then we reach Job 42, where Job has been shown to be ignorant. Job has been shown to not even have a basic level understanding. And here's what he says at the end of it all. This is his conclusion about suffering, about himself, and about the Lord. He first makes a declaration about God. Look at this declaration in verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is a real expression of wisdom on Job's part. Oftentimes when people go through suffering and they'll, they'll, they'll resort to some sort of uh, conclusion that, that says that God has lost control or, or that God doesn't care or that God isn't concerned. Now Job doesn't say any of that. Job has finally gotten the beginnings of wisdom here because Job, having been confronted with God, immediately recognizes this first axiom of suffering, which is that God is sovereign over all things. The absolute sovereignty of God. Now, Job doesn't even know the events of chapters 1 and 2. He doesn't even know that God offered him up to suffer. But he knows now that God is in control of all things. You know, this is a theme that the Bible often strikes, and it often strikes this theme at key turning points in the scriptures. We might think, for instance, of the dedication of Solomon's temple, where Solomon, after having constructed this massive and beautiful temple to the glory of God, looks at the temple and realizes that, in a sense, as great as it was, it was insignificant in the light of God's sovereignty. He says, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. You are in charge of all things. This temple doesn't even begin to contain you, and the whole world is under your control. Or we might think of the psalmist who over and over again repeats the greatness of the Lord. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. You see the theme that Job recognizes here. Lord, I know you can do all things. 
Or perhaps you think about the Lord visiting his people through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 45. And the Lord says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. What Job's doing here is simply echoing all of that by responding to God and saying, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. One of my favorite expressions of this comes in the book of Daniel. You might remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, a great king in the ancient world, probably one of the greatest kings in the ancient world, is confronted with a dream and he doesn't understand what it means. And so he goes to Daniel and asks for the interpretation. And Daniel tells him that the Lord is going to strike him down and he's going to eat grass uh, like the cattle for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar apparently seems to forget about that. It's about six months later and the text tells us he's walking along the walls and he says, Is not this Babylon the great which I with my hands have built? And immediately as he says those words, as they leave his mouth, he's struck down by God. Eats grass with the cattle for seven years. And at the end of it all, here is the account that we have in Daniel 4. It moves from a third person account to a first person account. Nebuchadnezzar speaking with his own words. And what he says is this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then the text goes on to say, at that time, my reason returned to me. This has to be one of the bedrock assumptions that we make, whatever the circumstances of our life. This is one of the clear teachings of Scripture. That the Lord is sovereign over all things. That the Lord is in control. That the Lord is the one for whom it can be said, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Some believe that the world is run by all kinds of different competing gods or spiritual beings. But what we see here is the sovereign God, the God of all creation, the God who created heaven and earth. The God who's in control. You remember, of course, how this is so vividly applied in the book of Acts. In the preaching of the apostles, Peter says it twice. He says it in Acts 2 and then he says it again in Acts 4 when he's recounting the very death of Jesus Christ. He says all of this was according to the preordained plan of God. You did it. You're responsible for it. It's your sin. But it's all under the sovereign hand of God. Well, that's the first declaration that Job makes, and it's an important one for us today to remember in the context of our suffering. The second declaration is also vital for us, but it's not so much a declaration about God as it is a declaration about human understanding, about the limitations of our own understanding. And Job had just had a master class in the limitations on his own understanding, as God gave him all these questions, none of which he had the answer to. What does he say that shows us his declaration uh, of human understanding? Well, first there is 
this quote at the beginning of verse 3. Let me read it for you, but look carefully at the punctuation. Because what the translation you're using should have here is a series of quotes. Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And what he's doing there is he's actually quoting from an earlier section of the book. He's quoting from chapter 38 and chapter 40. Now what we see if we look back at the passages from which he's quoting is that these aren't Job's words initially. These are the words that God himself has uttered and that God has then uttered through his servant earlier on in the book. In other words, Job is quoting God's own words when he says this. Job isn't saying to us, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Job is, in a sense, reminding himself of the very words of God. In other words, Job is saying, this is me. I I, I didn't have knowledge. I I, I thought I could counsel others. I, I thought I deserved answers. But the reality was that in light of God's wisdom, I, I, I was utterly bereft of answers. And that's what he says again in the remainder of the verse when he applies it directly to himself. Uh, in the second part of verse 3, he says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, Job is declaring that in terms of these great mysteries of why he suffered and why he suffered in the way he suffered, there was a limit to his own understanding and he had reached that limit. And he's simply agreeing with what God himself said and saying, I have uttered what I did not understand. It's a very important principle when it comes to suffering. It's a very important principle when it comes to all of the teaching of Scripture. One of the verses that John Calvin quoted from the most is Deuteronomy 29.29. If you don't know that verse, you should memorize it because it says this, the hidden things are of the Lord, but the things revealed are for us and for our children forever that you should observe all the words of this law. In other words, what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 29 is that there are hidden things There are things that God has not revealed to us as his children. And he's very upfront about that. He's very upfront about the fact that you may not get answers to all the personal and specific questions you have about circumstances in your own life. Because there are hidden things that are of the Lord. You know, the verse doesn't end there because the verse then goes on to say, but the things revealed are for us and for our children forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, what Moses is saying and what Job knows and what the Bible repeatedly tells us is that there are hidden things, but what are we to give our attention to, our time to, our mental energy to? Well, the things that are revealed, these wonderful truths that we get to the end of our lives and realize we've barely scratched the surface of. God has revealed himself clearly and deeply and profoundly in his word. And our job is to give ourselves to the study and obedience of that word. It points us to salvation. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also helps explain ourselves and the world in which we find ourselves. But there are hidden things. There are questions that it doesn't answer. Paul says, 
Now, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And then the Apostle Paul, this great apostle whom the Lord used, says this, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I am fully known. When you read the book of Job, at the end you realize that the Lord says, Job did not sin in anything that he said, unlike his friends. But Job recognizes that there are things he doesn't have answers to. And that is, that is part of the reality of being a creature. I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Perhaps you've been with someone and they're talking incessantly about a subject that you know a little something about. And you realize very quickly they have no idea what they're talking about. It's very difficult oftentimes to know how to handle those situations without, without being rude. But, but you see, that's precisely the situation Job says we're all in with respect to God and why he does what he does. The reality is that none of us have that kind of comprehensive knowledge. There are whole areas of our lives that we might say are hidden things that are of the Lord. But the things revealed are for us and for our children forever. The New Testament teaches us, though, that when we dig down into this mystery, there is an even deeper mystery. Because what the Bible teaches is at the heart of human history, there is undeserved suffering that makes possible undeserved blessing. Just as in this book, God offers up Job in a sense for our instruction. So we read the good news in the New Testament that God offered up his own son, the righteous suffering on behalf of the unrighteous, so that unrighteous people like us can receive the blessing of God. What does 2 Corinthians 5 tell us? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is why when you read the New Testament, you're struck again and again about the apostles' wonder at the glory of the gospel, this wonder at the mystery of God's redemptive plan. Job, in verse 4, repeats once again, Something that God said to him, hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And here's the conclusion he draws in verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's something like what the Apostle Paul expresses in Romans chapter 11. He quotes from Job 35 and 36 and pulls those texts together and says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And what Paul, of course, is 
referring to there is not so much the mystery of human suffering, although Paul didn't specifically know why all the things happened to him that happened to him, but what Paul's reflecting on there is the great mystery, the glorious mystery of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's plan of redemption of his people through that suffering. Now, we see in the end that Job never learns why he suffered, but he knows that those are things of the Lord. Now, we know why it is that he suffered to some degree. We at least know the background of it. And Job's response here, I think, makes it absolutely clear to us what our lives should and, and will be like. You know, there are, there are even some uh, churches today, even some preachers today who will, who will proclaim that, that suffering isn't a part of human experience. The book of Job reminds us of how central it is. Uh, but not only is it a central part of our experience, it's the central part of the message of the gospel. I quoted several times at the beginning from Peter's letter to those Christians who were suffering. We talked about all the things that suffering did in them and the way in which it showed the genuineness of their faith. Do you know what else Peter says in that same letter? He says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then Paul, in the book of Romans, talks about how our redemption gives us an entirely new perspective, even on the mystery of suffering. When he says this, connecting the suffering of Jesus to our own. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Job seemed to know something of that by pointing us to these twin truths in suffering. God is sovereign over all things and we should thank him that he is. And we see through a glass darkly but we can what we can see with clarity is the work of the suffering servant on our behalf and the ministry of his spirit who comes to us particularly in times of suffering sustaining us raising us up just as our lord jesus christ was raised from the dead let's pray together Oh, our great God, we do confess that we marvel at your wisdom. We marvel at your wisdom in our lives. We marvel at your wisdom in human history through your Son. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed these things to us. You've revealed them to us in such a way that we might honor and serve you with our lives. And so we pray that we would do that in whatever circumstances you place us. We are mindful, Lord, that you are in control and that what you have ordained for our lives 
is for our good and for your glory. Glorify yourself through your people, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing 231, Whate'er My God Ordains is Right, in response to this text. <laughs>